Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger radio show podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. In fact, the name badger probably comes from the French word beche, meaning Digger. It's that badger style. Hi everybody, this is James taking you through the Cricket Badger podcast this week and two splendid guests, I think you'll agree. Firstly, Graham Foxy Fowler, the former Lancashire Durham and England opening batsman. He takes on the Badger 20 questions this week. I've never spoken to Graham Fowler before, but I was a massive admirer of him as a player, as a coach, as a commentator, and also as an author of three outstanding books on cricket. Obviously, the conversation goes towards mental health at one stage. Graham, an ambassador for mental illness. I've got to admit, I've had my struggles with depression and anxiety in the past, and I've actually been quite a closed book on this but I didn't think it'd be right to talk to Graham without talking a little bit about myself as well so you'll find a little bit about my own situation with mental illness as we go through this chat and at one stage Graham says when you actually start to talk about it you feel better and I did so thank you to him for being on the show and for that as well it was a very very enjoyable chat with Graham Fowler I think you'll enjoy it and the second guest on the show this week is John Blaine former North Ants Yorkshire and Scotland fast bowler Ani Blaney when I was working at Yorkshire County Cricket Club and he's just been inducted into the Scotland Hall of Fame a richly deserved award for him and we talk about that and Scottish cricket plenty on the Cricket Badger podcast this week hope you enjoy it let's hear from them it's that Badger style Cricket Badger podcast fact file Graham Foxy Fowler England, Durham and Lancashire left-handed opening batsman. 21 tests and 26 one-day internationals for England. Highest first-class score 226. Highest test match score 201. Coach and commentator. Author of three excellent books. Fox on the Run, 
absolutely foxed. Mind over the better. Welcome to the podcast. Let's have a better chat. Graham Fowler, former England, Durham, Lancashire batsman. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. You're going to take on the Cricket Badger 20 questions this week. Um, so without further ado, I'll ask you the first one. If not a cricketer, Graham, what would you have done with your life? Oh, grief. I know what I would like to have done. I would like to have been a drummer. I've played drums since I was 16, and I would, uh, I, yeah, I would have loved to have followed that. Whether it would have worked, goodness knows. Any particular heroes there? Any particular music stars you'd, you'd have gone for? Yeah, far too many to mention, but uh, I usually like like counting to four and then starting so it's basically rock yeah question number two what has been the biggest influence or who has been the biggest influence on your career on my career oh that's hard to narrow it down to one uh but i'll try um david lloyd i think when i first started batting at lancashire he was the one who introduced me to a professional technique i joined lancashire and was a typical left-handed schoolboy and tried to hit everything through the offside and he said uh, no you can't do that anymore uh, so i think he put me on the path to understanding a professional way of playing uh, it's a good time to bring in the university coaching that you did because i've had a few guests on this show ask them that question and a lot of them have said you you know, when you were involved with the universities, you were involved with quite a few players that have gone on their good careers. When I set up the Centre of Excellence in 96, the first year that anybody left was 97, obviously. And since then, until I finished in 2015, we sent over 60 players into first-class cricket. Two women played for England, four lads played for Eng- went on to play for England. So and it, if it comes to actual influence in cricket I think I had a bigger influence on cricket as a coach than I did a player Is is that something that's quite nice Graham when you've had that contact with a player through coaching and then you see them go on and you you watch them make their debut for England or achieve something in the game Yeah yeah, definitely I I always loved when coaching that you could actually see people get better and see their enjoyment knowing that they were getting better and uh, yeah that side of stuff I've always enjoyed I've always enjoyed teaching and teaching and coaching so yes it is it's given me a of satisfaction through the years what's been your best moment in cricket if you could relive a day that you had sometime which one would you take uh, can I pick two I'd pick the I picked the 100 against the West Indies at Lords in 1984, and I'd also picked the 200 in Madras in 1985. I remember both of those innings very well. That West Indies side wasn't bad, was it? And those conditions out in India. Were you the first man to make it to 100 against India for England? In India, yes. Yeah, yeah. in India. Yeah, yeah the West Indies were hard work, but I liked the two together because one was against sheer pace and the, and the other one's against spin in the subcontinent. So yeah. I sort of liked the two added together because it identifies me as a batsman, not just an What's been your worst moment in cricket? Oh, God, there's been a few of them. My worst moment in cricket was actually when I found out I had two crushed vertebrae in my neck. And that was just after the double hundred. And that basically ended my England career. So I played two one-day internationals the following 12 months. But, but yeah, that was that was the worst moment, finding out that um, my neck was broken. Who was your cricket hero when you were younger? I never had one. Uh, I, w- I was never uh, one for having favourites, you know, a favourite car, a favourite favourite band, favourite player. Uh, I've never ever had a favourite. Um, there, were, there were people I liked watching. As a kid, I used to like John Edrich, uh, the Syrian England left-handed opener, and I used to like watching Gary Sobers, who's also uh, left-handed. But I, I never had a favourite. OK. If you could trade lives with any current cricketer for a day, who would you choose? Who would you like to live in the skin of, just see what it's like to be them? Yeah, ooh, that's interesting as well. Right now, um, I would probably say Chris Gale. 
the only reason being is because I'd love to know what it's like to hit the ball that far. <laughs> <laughs> he does conk it a little bit, doesn't he? And, and also the fact that he got 300 in a test match shows that he can play that form of game too. You know, I just want, want to be a T20 player because for me, the, the greatest format of cricket is still test cricket. Yeah. When you said right now, was your initial instinct to pick a player from the past? Yeah, yeah there's all, well, there's always players you can think of from the past. I mean, the all-time player I'd like to be for a day would be Viv Richards. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> it's amazing, wasn't it? But yeah, exactly. I, was, I mean, I know Smokey quite well, and uh, we were having a chat one day over a beer, obviously. And uh, I said, if you could change one thing about your batting, what would it be? And he, he took a while to answer, and then he said, uh, I think I'd like to pick the ball up earlier. And I thought, my God, <laughs> any any earlier, and the baller hasn't let go of it. <laughs> he was quite some player. Yeah, I, I wrote a piece that recently, the coolest cricketer that ever lived, and that was him. I, I, well, yeah. I was a kid when he was playing, and just watching him play the swagger the kind of the chain around his neck and the way he kind of chewed his gum and then just dispatched bowlers for fun it was incredible to watch well the thing was they had to wake him up to send him into bat <laughs> he's always fast asleep he always seemed to wait when he was out there in the middle didn't he mm. all he did when he walked out was put his gum in put his cap on put his gloves walk out he'd look at the scoreboard see uh, he'd look at who was bowling and he'd, by the time he got to the wicket he'd assessed everything yeah. <laughs> incredible play I'm going to put you in charge of cricket for a day Graham Fowler if you're in charge of yeah. world cricket for a day what would you change is there one thing that you change to make cricket a, a better thing? One thing, my God, I'd simplify all the regulations you know, because they're way, way too complicated. I mean, even players don't know some other regulations. So how are the fans supposed to get to a game and know what the hell's going on? I mean, this 100-ball thing, nobody's going to know what's going on. Nobody will know what a good score is. And year after yeah. year, they've changed all the regulations so you can't get used to what's going on. And I think the whole point, I mean, they don't fiddle about with football, do they? the goals bigger for the last 10 minutes you know we do the stupid things and I think we should just simplify it so that all phones and all competitions everybody they all stay the same and everybody knows what they're going to watch and what they're doing and I'd scrap this 100 ball thing I recorded a podcast fans podcast last night and which goes out the week after yours does so this is a good kind of trailer for that but spoke about this that I, I listened to Tom Harrison the ECB chief executive on the Tutters yeah. and Vaughan show on Radio 5 the other night and he was saying the whole purpose of this is to simplify it for this new breed of cricket fans and all they're doing is actually making cricket more complicated aren't they? But if they wanted to simplify it why not just have and, and I understand they want it on free to air TV and I understand they want to attract a new audience but why all of a sudden five ball overs we've never had five ball overs in the history of the game why not no. just have it a shorter form if it has to fit into a two and a half hour slot or whatever it is then why not have I don't know 12 overs a side 14 yeah. overs a side why do they have to complicate it by 100 balls? And they bowl 10 balls from one end. Either a baller bowls five and then another baller bowls five. So you've got to be astute to make sure you can see who's doing what. And then also, one baller can bowl 10 from one end. Now, that is not simplifying the game for a spectator. So you've got a 12-year-old who gets taken to a 100-ball game, watches it, likes it, thinks, I like cricket. So he goes to watch another game, completely different rules and regulations, and he's going to go, what's happening here? Which one's cricket? So it just Absolutely. doesn't make 
any sense to me at all. Yeah, man, after my own heart, I've been banging on about that on the podcast for many, many weeks now. I just, I doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And, you know, if, if you're trying to appeal to a new audience, they've got to learn those new rules, but your existing audience then have to learn the new rules as well. So you, you, you're actually alienating two sets of people. It just makes yeah, no sense. Other, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And the thing is, right, it's brilliant that they're getting on free to air, and that I understand. But that's all it needs to be. You need a format that fits in that time slot without changing the, the wheel. Why reinvent the wheel? Just have a shorter form of game and go, look, this is 12 overs, 14 overs, whatever you want. Absolutely, absolutely. The Cricket Badger podcast is brought to you in association with Cricket365.com. Their ethos, we love cricket and want to make the world love it as much as we do. Join them at Cricket365.com. Thank you very much to them for their support of the Cricket Badger podcast. They say all rock stars want to be sportsmen and vice versa. If you could have been famous and made it in a different field, not cricket, what would you have chosen to be? Well, I think I answered that earlier by saying the drum. Yeah, drummer. Yeah. You want to be a rock star? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You... A lot of good friends are musicians. And one of them is uh, John Keeble, who's the drummer in Spandau Ballet. Uh, oh, yeah. And he... He loves cricket and he keeps wicket. Well, I kept wicket a bit and played drums a bit. So we get on really well. Obviously, he, I think he's happy being himself, but he would love to have played cricket as well. And I'm happy being me, but I would also love to have played a lot more drums. Yeah, you could have done a job share, couldn't you? That would have been all right. Yeah, well, well one, one evening I went to his house and I took him, I think it was the last bat Duncan Fernley ever made for me. And I, and I gave it to him as a present. He gave me uh, his snare drum. So we both left, we both left happy. <laughs> nice. If you could meet anyone living or dead who would you like to meet on the proviso that i could understand them albert einstein okay i'd be fascinated how on earth did you come up with all these thought experiments and work stuff out it, it, yeah it'd be definitely be albert einstein who would play you in foxy the movie the movie about your life <laughs> um i have no idea probably or oh, what's he called carlisle oh i can't remember his first name oh robert carlisle yeah robert carlisle robert. probably in simon peg <laughs> <laughs> What's the last time you can remember feeling really nervous? Oh, really nervous? I think probably the night before I played the, the West Indies at Lords, uh, and then the okay. following night was 70 not out. I don't never used to get really nervous, um, and I certainly haven't got nervous since I finished playing. I mean, I do suffer from anxiety attacks, but that's not nerves that's a whole different ball game yeah. um for the last time i had an anxiety attack would probably be about two weeks ago um, but i can talk myself out of those now but actually just nerves i would say playing against the west indies good time to bring that up actually you're a mental health ambassador you've written three books and the big chunks of those have been about mental health and, and your struggles with that I, i've had that as well i've had depression and i had an anxiety t- attack about four weeks ago i was sat in the library and all of a sudden i was covered in sweat it wasn't very pleasant um, yeah. you told the story I, I went to the doctors when I first thought, I'm not right here. I went to the doctors. One of the questions they asked you is, do you feel suicidal? And yeah. I said, no, I don't feel suicidal. And I, I heard you tell exactly the same story. It struck a chord when you, yeah. you when you went on about that. It was my wife who identified I was depressed. Because during the Christmas holidays at university, you have from mid-December to mid-January. So that's a fair chunk of time. And I didn't have any preparation to do because I've been doing it 10 years and I knew what I was doing. And in the first week in January, Sarah just said to me, you need to go to the doctor. 
lectures. And I said, why? She said, because you're depressed. So what do you mean? She said, you haven't spoken to anybody for four weeks. And our eight-year-old at the time said, Dad, you just sit in the conservatory every day with a Land Rover magazine. And it's the same magazine every day. So I went I, I went to the doctors. I didn't argue because I realised after she'd said that, I had disconnected from everything. Everything and everyone. So I went to the doctors and he said, yes, you are clinically depressed. Have you thought of suicide? And I said, well, no. I said, because I know I have a great life. I have a wonderful family. I have everything's perfect, but it's over there, miles away, and I can't get to it. I said, so have I thought about suicide? The answer is no. But do I wish he was dead? The answer is yes. For me, anyway, it was kind of like being stuck in the middle of a big sort of fog or something. You kind of felt very distant from, from people and it wasn't something necessarily you identified yourself as you said and you, people would say can't cheer up sort of snap out of it kind of stuff and it's not as simple as that is it? Oh, God, no. the difference between an emotional down I mean I've been emotionally down yeah I'm on tour and I'm playing badly and kind of sick of hotels and stuff yeah you get down but I identified the two and she described it beautifully she said I get down she said but if I won the lottery I'd be happy again she said but if you got the, if when you're down and depressed, if you won the lottery, it wouldn't make you feel any different. That is absolutely bang on. That's completely true. When I was depressed, I, I was almost catatonic. I couldn't think of words. I couldn't speak. I remember lying on the sofa one day, just staring out the window. Sarah was at work. The girls were at school. And I wanted a cup of tea. And yet I could not get off that sofa to make a cup of tea. I just couldn't. And it's so bizarre. Uh, the doctor gave me um, tablets and I took because there's all sorts of different tablets on there and I took one lot and I can remember lying on the sofa feeling a bit sick and a bit as if I was on heroin or something I've never taken heroin but I imagine that would might be something similar to what it would feel like I went back and got another set and that made me feel even worse and in the end I didn't take anything I was slightly luckier than that the first set of pills they put me on um, you have to wait three weeks till they work so I waited five weeks they weren't working so I went back to the doctors then I had to have three weeks off so they get out of my system and then I tried a second set of drugs uh, unfortunately they worked they kicked in and what actually happened was he said to me what do you want out of this I said I want to be me again so they don't I don't want to be ludicrously happy every day. I don't want to take happy pills. I just want to be me again. And the, the second set of pills, which worked, first of all, they made me feel just numb. But being numb was better than wanting to be dead. And then over a period of time, I slowly, I wanted to re-engage. So that's how I knew they were working. And I came up with a scale, not to 20. 10's neutral, below 10 I'm ill, above 10 I'm well. Never been a 1, never been a 19. But I came up with this because our children were nine eight and two and i knew something was wrong with me but i couldn't speak i just came up with this idea one day so i could answer in a number so if sarah or the girl said how are you daddy i'd say i'm a seven all right do you want to be left alone or do you want us to sit with you and it didn't matter what i said they just got on with stuff but if they came in and, and i said later on when i was getting better i said oh i'm a, I'm a 12 they go brilliant do you want to do something and that simple scale uh we still use it now it was long before christmas i was watching telly and sarah just said what number Tim about 14, why? He said, oh, it's okay. She said, you haven't said anything for about an hour and a half. I said, no, it's because I'm really interested in this TV programme. <laughs> well, that's fine. And we still use it now, still use yeah. it. Yeah, that's one thing with um, depression or anything, uh, you know, mental illness, is that people can't see it, can they? You, you know, it's inside no. your head. It's hidden. You know, if your leg falls off, everybody can see and sympathise. But with a mental illness, it's not, it's not visible to other people. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And it, it's what I also did, though, is I went when I went back to work, 
and I was still a bit iffy. I explained the numerical system to everybody. Uh, I was in a coach's office and sort of with basketball, rowing, rugby, hockey. All the coaches were there and I explained the numerical system to them. So when I walked in the morning, they'd all go, what number? And if I said seven or eight, if I was a seven, I wouldn't be at work. But if I said eight, they'd go, all right, do you want a cup of tea? And they'd make me a cup of tea. If I walked in the seven, 13, they'd say, put the kettle on, you know, <laughs> so they reacted in a completely different way, and the more honest I was, the more help I got, so, yeah. you know, some people are frightened to tell others, that is your first step to recovery, telling people, talking with people, because once it's out in the open, you'll be so surprised how much help you get. Your feedback to the Cricket Budget Podcast is much appreciated. Cricketbadger at hotmail.com if you fancy sending us an email. Send us a tweet at cricket underscore badger and make sure you follow that Twitter feed too. We've got plenty of great guests planned over the coming weeks. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing. Do it now. Now. Now I tell you. As I said, you've, you've written three books and you've got one out now, which you're doing very well. I looked at that the other day. Mind Over Batter, isn't it, it's called? Yeah, yeah. Has the process of writing the books been a bit cathartic for you as well and helped a little bit? No, simply because if I'm writing about depression and my issues with it, and then I have to almost relive that in order to put it down on paper. Not cathartic. And obviously if I'm writing about something that's enjoyable, then, then I enjoy it too. The most cathartic thing was after Absolutely Fox was published, was that people came back to me and said, thank you for talking about your mental health issues. It really helps me. So that's where I got the cathartic feelings from because it was one of those, once it starts to help people, you can't stop doing it. You have to do it. You, you feel obliged to do it. And knowing what people had said to me, I had two people come up to me and said, if it wasn't for your books, I wouldn't be here anymore. And you think, my God, I didn't realise it had that much power. But if it saved two people's lives in the recovery, then how can you not write another book? That's huge, isn't it? That's absolutely massive. Yeah. I mean, on Twitter as well, the yeah, there's some idiots on Twitter. But uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've seen a few of the comments that you received from people on Twitter as well. You know, people saying, I've got your book now, I'm looking forward to the next one, you've helped me loads. You know, there's a, um, yeah. a lot of people there out there that have uh, you know, been affected by what you've written. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying, that's the cathartic bit. So yeah, I, I always tweet about how I'm feeling and, you know, a lot of other rubbish as well. But yeah, so what if it helps? You just keep going, don't you? So there's more. You've, you've had three now. So there's there's another one up your sleeve. Is there? I mean, obviously you're going to be uh, sitting back and watching this one sell, hopefully. But uh, there's there's more to come. The thing with me is I've had over no, I've had 50 years involved in cricket, so I can talk forever. Now, what <laughs> it will just depend whether the publisher sees any merit in doing another one, and also if do another one. Which direction are we going to go in? I'm not so sure. We'll just wait and see. See how this one goes. And um, back to the question. Are you a morning or a night person? Uh, night. What celebrity annoys you the most? I think the very word celebrity annoys me. When I was a kid, if you were famous, it was because you were good at something. Yeah. But these days, a lot, there are a lot of celebrities haven't in the real world done anything. You know, they've been on a reality show. You know, so, so what? That, the, the, the fact the celebrity thing really annoys me. I like famous people. I love people who can do anything and do it exceptionally well. So I congratulate all those people. But been on Made in Chelsea? Get lost. Too many people famous for being famous, aren't there? I think that's the... Uh, yes, that's the but they're vacuous. That's the thing. They're absolutely vacuous. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the fond, how cool are you? <laughs>
<laughs> I, I have no idea. I've never considered myself cool, uh, and I don't think I don't think any many others have either. So I'd 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 be well below five. <laughs> Most people answer with a number, but your laugh, I think, was the answer. That was fine. Um, <laughs> if you had access to a time machine, where and when would you like to go to? <laughs> That's an interesting one. It, 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 well, I'm, mm, you know, are there any caveats? If I went back, would I, would I be poor? Or would I be rich? Or what would I be? I'd like to see the world before there were roads, just a forest and grass. Before there were any roads and any stone walls, I'd like to see that. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you like to live? Where I am now, the northeast of England. I wouldn't move. There's lots of places in the world that I've visited that I love, but where do I want to live? I want to live where I am because my family's here. I love the area. It's beautiful. County Durham and Northumberland are beautiful. I have good good friends up here. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would you change? I've always thought that I'd like to be taller. I'm five, well, I'm five nine and a half. And I'd always thought I'd like to be taller, but now no, I'm not bothered about that. I think uh, I'd like to have a better singing voice or a better okay. coordination playing the drums. I'd roar. What will you be doing in 10 years' time? Hopefully, I'll still be doing it, things in mental health. And I, in 10 years' time, I'll be 72. And hopefully, I'll, I'll still be in some way connected with the game. But for the rest of the time, just enjoying my family. Graham Fowler, we got to question number 20 already. If you've been picking these questions, what would you have asked yourself to get a great and exclusive answer? I probably would have asked myself three things to make you better as a person and a cricketer. One would have been not to have had a violent mother. <laughs> that would have helped, which probably would have made me calmer. But in being calmer, would I have been as frenetic as I was when I played cricket? You can go on for hours with things like this. Yeah. Um, but in essence, I would still be me and I wouldn't change anything. I don't have regrets. The only unfortunate thing is the car accident in which I broke my neck. And I think without breaking my neck, because uh, I just, in my last two test matches, I got 201 and 69. And I'd scored more runs in the first 20 test matches than Gooch, Boycott, anybody else at the time. And I'd like to have seen how good I could have been. But, you know, hey, that's, that's the way it is. I was dealt that card then you've got to play it there's, you know there's no point wishing it was otherwise because if they'd found out I had a broken neck at the time I would never have even played cricket so mm. would I rather have found out at the time or would, that, would I rather have had 21 test matches and then find out I'd rather have the 21 test matches. Just before I let you go, Graham, for mate, I, I used to really enjoy listening to you commentate on Test Match Special, and yeah. all of a sudden you, you disappeared from that. Did, was that a conscious thing that you, you didn't like that, or they, they binned you off? What was the, what was the situation there? Um, I think binned off is a bit hard. <laughs> but what, what happened was, um, and it happened more or less at the same time with Sky. Sky got up to the 12 years for freelance for Sky. But Sky got up a lot more cricket so they got a lot more permanent staff and what I used to do was be the third person and drive all over the country so once we started getting more staff then my position didn't exist anymore so that was fine that was alright and, and test match special Peter Baxter who was the producer for 20 odd years he resigned and Adam Mountford took over and he wanted to establish his own stamp and you can't blame him and, right. and also there was this thing that I only commentated during July and August because I was at university the rest of the time and what you don't want is some little lad saying to his dad dad who's that and he says I don't know so yeah. there comes yeah. a time unless you're doing it if you're doing it six days a week you know like Gower or Beefy or whoever then you maintain your contact with the public but if you're only doing it sporadically like I did then you're only around now and again 
again, so people might lose touch with who you are. So I, I understood the, the decision to, to let me go and said thank you, but thank you for all the time that you've done. Uh, I mean, I, I basically did 19 years for BBC Freelance in various guises. So it was understandable and it was something I enjoyed, but you get to the end of it and that's it. Graham Fowler, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on this week. I've really enjoyed the, the chat with you and many success with your book and all the best for the future. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it as well. It's that Badger style. Cricket Badger Podcast Fact File John Angus Ray Blaine Scotland, Northamptonshire and Yorkshire pace bowler Made his Scotland debut at 16 Yes, 16 33 one-day internationals 6 2020 internationals Best one-day international bowling 6 for 22 Best first-class bowling 6 for 42 Former coach at Yorkshire and now at Grange in Scotland Recently inducted into Scotland's Cricket Hall of Fame. Welcome to the podcast. Let's have a badger chat. Pleasure then to welcome an old mate of mine from Yorkshire days. John Blaine, how are you? I'm not bad, James. How are you? Long time no speak. Good to hear your voice. And uh, as I was just telling you off air, there's a big picture of a beaming John Blaine on my screen with a a Scottish cap being presented to him because you're now a a Hall of Famer, aren't you? I am. Is that going to be your screensaver now, James? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure. There's a big tough competition. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big honour, though, isn't it, to to get that cap and to be recognised by your country? It's, uh, yeah, it's nice. I mean, I'm 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 an introvert, really, and uh, sort of have all the attention on a day is um, you know it's a little bit embarrassing but you know as people keep telling me I should be I should be very proud of it and I am actually you know I'm, I'm very proud to make my family proud if that makes sense and um, yeah. they, they, they seem to enjoy the day and it was a nice day a nice occasion we sadly you know we didn't get cricket at the Grange because it rained or nonetheless it was a really nice op- opportunity to get my family around and appreciate the, the, the presentation scroll down the page a little bit there's a picture of yourself and, and your family there looking very proud you, I tell you it's a long time since I've seen you because you're kids are big now yeah it'll be um, nine years I think so Cameron I think Cameron's just born when you uh, we were together at Leeds so yeah it'll be nine years and I've got my daughter Faith uh, she's three so yeah life moves on moves on quickly and I'm, I'm 40 I was 40 in January or so I'm not a huge reflector and uh, the weekend gave me an opportunity to reflect on my career somewhat ironically in the in the, in the hospitality tent next to us uh, one of my old teammates uh, Dougie Lockhart uh, who's now a board member at Cricket Scotland actually he'd organised a 2005 reunion now 2005 Scotland team was uh, probably one of the most successful teams of, of all time really, given the fact that it qualified for major tournaments and uh, was leading uh, associate cricket for a number of years so he had organised a reunion on the, uh, in the tent next to us, so once the presentation was out of the way I just popped next door for a drink to catch up with the guys and some of those guys came through, uh, well all those guys came through from my presentation so it was nice to have them there He started at the tender age of, of 17. It's a little bit of a bugbear of mine, <laughs> totally a bugbear. Is that not right? Well, it's not right, no it's not right James, I <laughs> Someone who's not pedantic about too many things, but I am about this. But 16 years and 128 days. I mean, my debut against Nottinghamshire at Trent Bridge in the old Benson Hedges. Chris Tolley, Paul Johnston, uh, who else played that time? Yeah, that, that sort of era. And Jim Love was Scotland coach at the time, wasn't he? He was obviously the Yorkshire connections there at the very start of all of this. Yeah, Jim was a good man and he, he, he saw you through and, and got you into that side. Well, I owe a lot to Jim. Um, I text Jim actually the other night to say thank you for, for the opportunity he gave me and having belief in me because I think you know to put 
put a, I'm thinking now as a coach, to put a 16-year-old into a, a county ground environment against fully-fledged professionals, he must have had a lot of belief in me. So, you know, I was trying to get into his mindset uh, of late, actually. You know, I thought, what would I do if I had a 16-year-old? Because it's a, it's a big move. Actually, I've got a couple of 16-year-olds coming through the system at, at Grange, where I'm at, I am at the moment. And, you know, I wouldn't have any qualms putting them into a uh, high-level performance environment. So, yeah, no, but going back to Jim, he, he was really supportive of me, uh, gave me a lot of direction, ultimately gave me the opportunity to, to get into the world of cricket. Um, he, t- he tied me up with Northamptonshire when I was 16. He, I think his, his, chief, his friend was the chief executive at uh, Northampton at the time, Steve Coverdale. So I went down there when I was 16, had a trial, and, you know, got a contract. In those days, it was an April to September contract. It wasn't a 12-month contract. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so he, he got me started both internationally and um, professionally. So I owe a lot to Jim. It's quite a good time to talk to you as well, isn't it, with the World Cup around the corner, just about to get underway. Scotland got so close, didn't they, to getting a... a, a position in this World Cup. I, found, I actually fancy the West Indies to do quite well in this World Cup, but it's the West Indies that were Scotland's undoing in the end. It would be nice to see another two teams in this World Cup, wouldn't it, to see Scotland and maybe... Yeah, the likes of the Netherlands or somebody else taking part. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think um, first and foremost, it was a real disappointment for the game in Scotland not to qualify. Uh, I think what's important for the national team nowadays is to sort of uh, achieve visibility on the global stage, and that would that would have done us uh, once again. You know, something that Ireland have done in the last five, six, seven years is, is just secure inclusion in you know the global stage uh, top table, and uh, uh, something that we we desperately need to to, to get uh, in Scotland. You know, to lose out in such a cruel way. You know, it was such a Cruelly uh, against the West Indies was disappointing, but yeah, I do fancy the West Indies this time. You know, I think one of the stats of the last 50 over World Cup there was, I think it was 328 sixes or something scored. You know, and I, and, I, and I feel the team that can sort of look to have what will go on and do well. I mean, you've seen the explosive way in which England bat now. Uh, obviously, the West Indies have always played that way, so you're always going to fancy teams that can score a high percentage of boundaries. And they've also both teams, England and the West Indies, have got variations in their attack as well. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, it's it's a certain different World Cups from when I played. I played in the 99 and the 2007 World Cups, but it's a different uh, different game now, really. It's a different game for bowlers, isn't it? You, you see the likes of Joss Butler and Chris Gale, etc., just uh, yeah, bashing the ball. Kieran Pollard in the last IPL was astonishing. And you, you might as well almost, at times, wheel out a bowling machine and stick it there rather than actually put people through bowling at some of these guys because it's, it's monstrous what they can do, isn't it? It is. And, you know, that's testament to the skills that the batsmen have nowadays. You know, they score 360 all around the wicket. There used to be a period in the 50-over game where ball asked the question of the bat, but now I think the bat just asks the question throughout the full 50-over. You know, it doesn't really allow the ball or an opportunity to settle. I mean, I watched a game yesterday at Grange, Sri Lanka against Scotland. There was a short period when the spinners came on in the middle period of the innings where it just slowed proceedings down. But then, you know, you've got a, you've got a situation where the spinners come to the back end of the spell and then the seamers come back on and it's just it's just it's not cannon fodder for the batsman it's just a damn sight easier than, than it used to be the game is changing the game is changing skills are improving for the batsman um, but then it's, you know as a bowler it's a good time to play because you know it's asking more of you and you have to sort of develop your skills and uh, and allows you to be expressive as a, as a as a young bowler going back to the start of your life in cricket as a, as a teenager or whenever you first picked up a ball and thought I can, I can bowl this and I can do this quite well Scotland with all due respect isn't known to be a cricket nation is it you know you, from where I sit in England you think about Scotland as being football you get the occasional athlete coming through cricket isn't the first thing you think about as a youngster what was the lure for cricket because it, it can't be a 
couldn't have been a fashionable sport to be attracted to. No, I mean, I was born and bred in a place 12 miles outside of Edinburgh called Pennycook, and um, it's on the way to the borders, uh, on the way down to the, uh, to, the, to, to the beautiful spots down there. Um, and, and our house just lived around the perimeter of Pennycook Cricket Club. Now, football was my first sport. Cricket, I guess, offered a bit of respite to me during what was a, a very um, a very busy a busy schedule as a young footballer. Yeah, um, I signed schoolboy formers with the and then I went across to play uh, with Falkirk, you know, so I was a sort of junior professional for the best part of three years and then, you know, I sort of got to a stage where I became disillusioned with football and then cricket was just there and as I say, it was a respite and because I was physically fit and strong, I found bowling quite quite easy and I could, you know, maybe had a natural ability to, to get the ball down the other end relatively quickly, uh, had a bit of skill and, and that, that was it, but, you know, football was my first thing and then, you know, cricket was the respite and I you know as a coach nowadays, I see a lot of parents asking, or even a lot of governing bodies asking children to specialise. Now, the big thing that got me into cricket was football, if that makes if that makes total sense. And actually, yeah. it gave me the attributes that uh, allowed me to do what, what I did for so many, so many years, you know, the physical strength and balance and, and, and composure at the crease. And then, you know, when I, when I guess, having played in big football matches when I was younger, when I got my debut, you know, at Trent Bridges we talk about, I wasn't I wasn't phased by it. I didn't feel, didn't feel overawed by it. Yeah, and that was that. But the lure of cricket became such that, you know, I started to travel the world, um, see different parts of the world. We played under-19 World Cups. Uh, I was travelling with the national team, the full national team. So a huge draw for me to, to commit to cricket. And then um, got my county contract down in Northamptonshire, and I left home just when I turned 17. So, yeah, it was a, it was a quick transition, but it, it almost felt right. And, uh, as I said, going back to the original point there, Jim Love was a huge part of that. A new feature on the Cricket Badger Radio Show podcast is the letters page. Very much in inverted commas, because what we want you to do is to record your comments on that to your telephone. Send us the audio to cricketbadger at hotmail.com and we'll play it out as part of that letter page function. Maybe even react to what you say, whether it's an opinion on cricket, international or domestic. Maybe you've got some selection suggestions for the England team or for your county. Maybe you just want to have a bit of a rant. Make it anything up to a minute long. Send it in to cricketbadger at hotmail.com and you might find yourself on next week's Cricket Badger Radio Show podcast. For a teenager now in Scotland that is maybe listening to this and thinking, could I play cricket? What are the opportunities available for people in Scotland now? Is it better now than it was when you were coming through? Most definitely. I mean, participation numbers are up. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't give you what they've, what they've gone up to. You know, what I did feel to mention in that last question there, James, was that there's more cricket clubs than rugby clubs in Scotland, you know? Now, OK, participation numbers might be higher than rugby, but, you know, no one actually thinks about cricket in Scotland, but actually I said to them, well, there's more cricket clubs per se than, than rugby clubs, you know? The intervention or the addition of all-star has helped out, um, shall we say, smaller clubs and numbers have grown uh, in clubs outside the city. I mean, clubs in the city, they still attract uh, kids from independent schools predominantly in the outer skirts of the of the city. Um, All-Stars have really helped boost numbers. In the west part of the country, uh, we have a, brilliantly have a, a strong uh, Asian community and a lot of the Asian community are holding clubs uh, in the west together and that's going from strength to strength. They've just started a tape ball league, um, which is an indoor game played with a tape ball in Glasgow um, and that sort of has again boosted numbers throughout the winter and and the, the other thing to note in Scotland is that because the game only lasts um, for six months and you know given the rain it can sometimes only be a four and a half month season we've got to try and keep the keep the players engaged you know for example a youngster at the club that I'm at that 
I work at the minute at Grange, you know, he'll soon finish his cricket season, he'll go into rugby, he'll go into hockey, he'll go and do other sports. So we've got to try and keep them engaged as long as possible, you see. And then with the challenges we have in terms of weather and climate, that's not easy, you see. But there's certainly an opportunity for them to come through now. Um, we've got avenues into, you know, um, aspirational cricket so they can come through the club, go into regional cricket, and then they can go into international youth programmes and then potentially through into county cricket. So the, the pathway is there even more so than, than in my day, but it's just trying to keep them engaged because of the attractions of those other stakeholders. I first met you when you were coming to the tail end of your playing career and you're going to coaching with Yorkshire and obviously continued down that path up in Scotland. What, what are your aspirations for coaching? I mean, as you know, I'm reading from this article that uh, they've, they've published, but they've got your, your age wrong on debut, obviously, but uh, at the end of it, it kind of hints that potentially you could end up being Scotland coach at some stage. Is that something that's on your radar? Yeah, I did read that. I mean, and, and you know, that's something I've not, I've not ruled out in, in years to come, but um, I came back to Scotland after Yorkshire and I worked in the west of Scotland and I came across, moved across the east and worked in independent school in Edinburgh. I got the job at the Grange as director of cricket. Now it's a huge operation the Grange and I became really busy. I then got offered the, the national fast bowling job for Cricket Scotland. So I took that on. So I had three jobs at once but the problem was I wasn't doing justice to any of them because I was so busy. So I decided to stick at the school for the for the, for the the time being So which was Loretto School in Musselburgh. And then you know what happened there was the jobs just got very busy. So the Grange came back to me and said look John would you like to come on board and be our director of cricket more full time? So I did that and uh, I now find myself at the Grange on a full-time basis and I'm thoroughly enjoying it now. I'm still around the international scene, uh, help out in the, in the pathway system for the young fast bowlers and I still advise some of the um, international players now but I'm not actively involved in the international national team. I, mean, I was fast bowling coach for for two years I say but uh, who's to say I'll get it back in the future I just don't know but I think more importantly the moral of the story is James I'm actually really happy in what I'm doing you know I think um, when I had three or four jobs on the go at once you never do justice to one you know you're never in the same place at the same time so uh, you're always moving on to the next thing and never actually doing the job uh, properly so I'm really happy at the moment uh, what happens in the future is, um, is is yet to be decided and yet to be seen but uh, I'm really 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 content in what I'm doing at the moment so uh, I mean I've got a good relationship with the new coach uh, who, who just came in uh, Shane Berger from South Africa we've, we've met up a couple of times and you know he picks my brains about what, what I see in terms of cricket across the, across the country so yeah I can help um, remotely you know but uh, in terms of taking on the job uh, myself in the future I haven't ruled it out but I'd love to do it you know why wouldn't you I mean Stevie Clark the new football manager um, who has got an incredible CV you know Chelsea and uh, and so on and so forth he, he, he mentioned last night that actually it's his dream his dream job why wouldn't you want to coach your national team I don't want to do pressure John but the, uh, he's got a big job there hasn't he with the uh, Scotland football team at the moment <laughs> Well, he hasn't. He hasn't. You know, it's a good. It's a good question for a coaching uh, forum. You know, if you've got a lot of coaches in the room and put names down on paper, you would actually look at it and say, "Well, that's not a bad. That's not a bad. Uh, that's not a bad squad. How do you get them playing together?" And I think what happened was the national team had sort of fallen out of love with the strategy and the, the sort of brand of Scotland. And you know, uh, you say he's got a big job, but I actually don't think it's too far away because he'll he'll get them playing for for the badge. You know, um, so yeah, we'll see. Well, he was talking about making it a club environment and trying to get them to. Come in and, and buy into that club mentality when they were on Scotland duty. That's a good a good motivation for a coach, isn't it? In, in any sport, in any team sport, getting players to play together to be better than the sum of all of their parts. I guess that's all, what you're all aiming for, isn't it? Yeah, look, James, I don't want to get too philosophical, but we live in a, a self-indulgent world now, you know, regardless whatever it is, whether it's international sport or, or whatever, you know, people are looking out for themselves. Now, you imagine a coach trying to get a, a cohesive group uh, with a common goal and a common strategy. That's not easy. You know, dovetail into that, you've got the sort of uh, 
um, idea of money or, or futures or, or pressure. It just it becomes a whole concoction of, of difficulties. So, yeah, a coach nowadays hasn't got an easy job. I mean, I find a lot of young cricketers coming through who are quite self-indulgent and don't see the bigger picture. It's my job to try and, you know, open their eyes to uh, the other side of that performance. I mean, I was talking last night to someone about Joe Root, as, as we both knew uh, a young man at Yorkshire. And Joe was not only a very focused individual, but he, he, he totally got the team the team ethos and, you know, he's a really good all-round individual. The reason you're on the pod this week is because uh, of your Hall of Fame induction. Going back to your Scotland days and looking back at your time there, many, many highs there. If you were to pick out one or two days to relive, maybe, of your Scotland career, which ones would you want to uh, go back and enjoy again? Good question. I mean, obviously the major tournaments, um, we've got the, the 2007 World Cup in the West Indies, 99 World Cup in England, 2009 T20 in uh, England, 2007 T20 in South Africa. These are all major tournaments played in a global stage, and naturally they're going to be highlights. There was one one uh, performance, however, 2001 in Sharjah, when we played against Canada. It was the final of the Intercontinental Cup. Now, the Intercontinental Cup is, is, was the associate equivalent of the, the four-day competition, and um, we went to Sharjah to play against Canada, who at the time were, were relatively strong and had just pipped us to the World Cup. Actually, I've just got the, I've just got the player of the match plaque in front of me, James, in my office. It says the 21st to 23rd November 2004 it was. Yeah, I got nine nine wickets in the match and uh, myself and a, a, my, my roommate, my roommate for a number of years, Paul Hoffman, we bowled them out both innings and just it was a, a really memorable moment um, for me because that was the, the period the team were really coming together uh, and going back to the original point of the conversation, 2005, the team really picked its height. So that was a, a moment for me, player of the match in the final against Canada, uh, Intercontinental Cup 2004. Yeah, it was a real highlight for me but, but I think Sharjah was always a, a really nice stadium for me. I enjoyed playing there um, just because of the history of that ground but uh, people would always talk about the World Cups but that, that was a real special four days for me. Discover one of the most beautiful lifestyle resorts in the Caribbean at the Accra Beach Hotel and Spa. Located on the south coast of Barbados, this beachfront property offers 224 rooms, sparkling pools, four restaurants, three bars, an on-site spa, event and conferencing facilities, and a welcoming team providing unparalleled relaxation to make your stay a memorable one. What are you waiting for? Book your reservation at this award-winning hotel today and experience the Caribbean dream. I remember going to Abu Dhabi and you were part of the Yorkshire squad there and you left early to go to a World Cup and then you left that World Cup early. Yeah. I can't remember why Why did that happen? What was the, what was the story behind that? It's a, it's a bit of a long story really and no one's ever asked me that question so you, know, you can use it how you want to use it according to exclusive if you want but what happened was we went to South Africa that winter to try and qualify for the, the World Cup, the 50 over World Cup and we didn't qualify. Um, we should have qualified and I remember coming home um, just after Christmas and saying to my family look you know I'm, I'm I'm struggling with the strategy that's being put out in front of us in terms of you know the coach uh, and the, the team we have the team had been you know had been fluid and been self-managed and self-policed for a number of years and we were turning out some really good performance we had some experienced players we had myself 
Gavin Hamilton, Dougie Brown and some really good homegrown talent who were performing and we were leading the way in the associate cricket now. A new coach came in uh, and tried to, if you want, you know, reinvent um, the, the wheel, so to speak, and we, we didn't win games of cricket. Now, I won't go into the technical and tactical things of it, but we just didn't win We didn't win the associate qualifying tournament to go to the World Cup. So I came home a little bit disillusioned and was a bit fearful of going to the 2009 World Cup in, in England, the T20 World Cup, and uh, I spoke to my family and I said, look, you know, I'm a bit concerned and they said, well, John, look, you go back to Yorkshire, do your do your stuff, uh, see if that invigorates you, and then, you know, when the World Cup comes round, then, then you might be in a better place. And as you say, James, we went to we went to Abu Dhabi with, with Yorkshire, and I flew directly from Abu Dhabi to back to, to England for the for the World Cup stuff. When I got to England, things hadn't really changed. Um, we played Bangladesh at John Paul Getty's ground. You know, I was a bit concerned by sort of strategy that was being that was being laid out, and um, I knew that it wasn't suitable to the group of players we had. Anyway, long short of it was, we played Bangladesh in a match at John Paul Getty's and it didn't go very well. Um, there was a few few, um, was a few things discussed during the match and then after the match, we were having a post-match discussion and, you know, given the fact that I was one of the senior players and vice-captain, the coach didn't want to hear my opinion and actually Gavin, who was captain, Gavin Hamilton, who was captain at the time, had said to me, look, Blaney, you and I, would, we, should, we should drive this drive this bus again, we should get this team back to what it has been for the last four or five years and, and uh, that, that wasn't the case because the, the coach wanted to, to play a certain way so I tried to reason with the coach and talk about it he wasn't wholeheartedly interested and um, I decided to leave and, and I just left the camp and, and that, that was it I just felt that I wasn't focused on my cricket and I wouldn't be uh, when I went on the global stage in two days time so I just left the camp and I went back to Leeds and uh, that following morning uh, I didn't get back into Leeds until about half past three in the morning that following morning I took the academy to Scarborough and felt quite liberated and, and um, you know it was uh, it was a, it was a, it was a it was a, it was a silly move. It was a pedantic move by me. It was a, you know an immature move. But I think the reasons which I did it were were um, were right because over the next four or five years Scotland didn't achieve the the, the success they should have done, um, and that was down to a change in coaching staff and strategy. And you know I think that's where Ireland nipped in. You know we we took a we took a bad touch on the ball and they just nipped in and took possession. And you know where Ireland are now, I, I think if we had continued on the lines we were on, Scotland would be more than comfortably where Ireland are. Um, and that was just that was it. So what I did was wrong, and it's taken me a number of years to gain the trust and um, and get back on side with a, with a few people. I mean, I offered all of branch to, to to the stakeholders in that decision, that sort of incident, um, and we've moved on from that. But uh, yeah, you did ask. Uh, I thought I'd tell you. James. <laughs> Am I right in saying you didn't play for Scotland after that? If you, if you had your time again, yeah. you you would deal with that differently, would you? And maybe just try and yeah, save I mean, me in that stage. Yeah, I would deal with it differently. Um, I was a little bit emotional at the time and um, a little bit frustrated, so to speak. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I missed out on having gone to Northamptonshire and Yorkshire. I'm, I, I probably missed out on 100, and, uh, I don't know, 115, 120 caps, maybe more. And then I certainly missed out on the way my fitness went. I certainly missed out on 70 or 80 caps after 2009. So you know, I probably missed out on the best part of 200 caps. You know, now I got 320. I got 120. So I'd easily been Scotland's most cap player, and you know that. Uh, that was my decision at the time, you know. But uh, um, I certainly could perfor- couldn't perform, and probably couldn't have performed in the environment that was being created. I remember writing a met letter at the time to one of the board members, highlighting my concerns, and um, that that email was pulled out seven or eight years later. And um, unfortunately, some of the points I made have came to fruition. But uh, hey ho, that's that's how life moves, you know. Um, and look, but, but just to for the record, I, you know, I'm 100% behind Scotland and what they're doing now. Uh, Grant Bradburn, who moved on to become the assistant coach of Pakistan really moved the national 
team forward. We've got a good young coach in Shane Berger now, and hopefully they can sort of just uh, achieve the results they want to achieve. I know they need to try and achieve a, a, a victory against one of the full members, you know, to try and secure test status. That's the next objective. So um, I was hoping they could have done it. Uh, in these four matches against Afghanistan and Sri Lanka but that's not happened but who's to say it might not happen in the next the next year or so and Blaine you, you came down to Northampton the youngster then you played for Yorkshire as well in the county game how much did that give you as a cricketer to add to your experience that you'd had already presumably more competition but fairly intense as well I guess yeah very intense James uh, the county game is relentless you know if you're not switched on it, it sort of spits you out quickly and I was lucky to have so many years uh, I had a lot of natural pace and as time went on I developed a lot of, well, more skill and guile and became a better all round bowler I mean I had a huge back operation in 99 just after the Laurel Cup and that took me 18 months to come back to full fitness I was told I'd never come back to the county game but I did uh, I'd won uh, sorry, two knee operations and you know numerous side injuries but that's because I, you know, chose to bowl fast. That was part of the journey, you know. You know, I, I bowled a lot of my better spells, um, my best spells, when I was top side of 30, and uh, I felt I was a, a really all-round bowler by 28, 29, 30, 31, 32. And, you know, I keep telling young fast bowlers now that they might be 18, 19, 20, or even 21, but they're not really a bowler until 28, 29, 30, because the, the body's getting used to strains of bowling, but also you're learning your trades. So the county game was good for me in that regard, that it let me develop... Thank you for coming on today. It's a pleasure to uh, speak to you again and good to ha- have your time on the uh, Cricket Budget Podcast. Just one final question, Blaney, before I, I let you go. Fantastic tournament, the World Cup, about to start on these shores. England got a huge chance of winning it. But it's a great opportunity for the game, isn't it? Not just in England, but in Scotland, all over the place, too try and get people excited by what they're going to say over the next six weeks. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, go back to 2005. You know, no one, no one ever thought what would have happened in 2005 with the Ashes series then would have happened and propel the game in the country and in Europe to, to such a level, you know. It happened without any warning. Now, I'm hoping, I'm hoping the World Cup this summer and I'm hoping the uh, Ashes this summer can propel the game to, to greater heights, you know. It's a really good summer to look forward to. England have an exciting bunch of young, young cricketers and I think I think there's a, a genuine risk from all teams in the tournament this year, the World Cup, that something can happen. So, you know, we talked at the start of this call about uh, West Indies and uh, England coming to the fore, but I wouldn't bet against, uh, not that I'm a betting man, you know, another team causing a real upset. So it's an exciting summer. Can't believe we're almost in June. It's incredible how quickly the summer goes. But, uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to it. And hopefully we can have a repeat of 2005 and the game can be propelled further forward if that is if that is possible. Well, hopefully that's exactly right. John Blaine, thank Thank you very much for joining me on the Cricket Budget podcast this week. And once again, many congratulations. Inducted into the Hall of Fame in Scotland and well deserved. Thank you, James. It's that Badger style. Thank you very, very much indeed to Graham Fowler and to John Blaine for joining me on the Cricket Badger podcast this week. It's been a pleasure to talk to both of them and I hope you enjoyed the chats that I had with them. I'll be back again next week for another Cricket Badger podcast when I'll be joined by... Two supporters. Becky Fairley-Clark is the chairman of the Cricket Supporters Association and Simon Peel, who you'll have heard before on a previous fans forum on the Cricket Badger podcast. They both join me to talk about cricket. Obviously, the conversation gets around to the 100 and we talk about the county game. So join me next week for that. And until then, enjoy your cricket badges. Just stop.
Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.